Thank you. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition. I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and this is a program where we take a look at the Word of God, but through the lens of apostolic tradition, that is, the tradition that goes back to Jesus, His apostles, and their disciples. We're especially going to be dealing with ways in which people can pray through the Scripture, that this should be the main way that we in, inform our prayer. We'll especially be talking about the way Judas Iscariot tried to reduce Jesus' authority. And he did that in order to make his act of betrayal easier to commit. This is not at all unlike the sex-offending bishops and priests of our own day, who do the same kind of thing to justify their own immorality and the betrayal of the Good Shepherd, and, of course, at the same time, the betrayal of their own flocks. Now, if you have any questions or comments related, especially today's topic, we invite you to call us to be part of the show. The phone number is 1-800-221-9468. Eight hundred two two one nine four six zero, and that works if you are in North America. If you are not, that won't work. But you can call another number, country code one, area code two o five, two seven one, two nine eight zero, or you can contact us through email by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com. Of course, you can follow us and participate with the show on YouTube or do like these nice folks have done, coming right here to our studio audience. We're continuing to go through my book, Wheat and Tares, Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. This is available at EWTN's religious catalog. Just go to EWTN rc.com, where it is item number 81098, 81098. We are starting our discussion today at the bottom of page 87. So, this is where we see in Luke 22, uh, verse uh, 47, that while our Lord Jesus is speaking to his disciples, Judas arrives with a crowd. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. So uh, this is, first of all, it's something that's not uncommon in the Middle East. You know, uh, it's, it sometimes seems odd to us. But in some countries, like Egypt, for a man to kiss a woman in public is illegal. And you can get a ticket for it in, in Egypt. Um, they, even if it's your own wife, you have to be, you know, uh, that, that kind of modesty between a man and a woman is expected. But it's not unusual for men, especially if they haven't seen each other, to kiss each other on the cheek. That's just very normal. And we see the same action 
described in Matthew chapter 26, verse 48, where St. Matthew wrote, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I shall kiss is the man, seize him. And, and again, normally this day, they don't kiss people. Men don't kiss each other on the lips. That, that wouldn't be it. But they would kiss each other on the cheek. You see that in France and other countries in Eastern Europe and such. Uh, that was used as a sign. Now, again, this is something that is done when people see each other after not having seen each other for a while. It's a... Uh, a sign of greeting um, that and you know, joy at seeing a friend that you've missed. It's not something you do every time you see each other. That, that wouldn't be the case. Um, if you see each other each day, that wouldn't be the case. And in this situation, Judas had just been at the Last Supper a couple hours before. So it would not be an expected kind of greeting. So it's a, uh, that's something, but what it indicates is a couple things. First, this symbol of affection and friendship is now turned into a sign of betrayal. That's one thing. Secondly, we also see that this was premeditated by Judas. It's not something he said, oh yeah, I'll just go up to him and kiss him, and then you're... No. He had told the crowd coming with him that that would be a signal. He planned on betraying Jesus with this sign uh, of, of the kiss. And a sign of friendship would become a premeditated sign of betrayal. It's the opposite of what we talked about at the Last Supper. When our Lord offered Judas to dip his bread in the same dish, that's also a very normal sign of friendship and, of, and trust and affection. And our Lord sincerely makes that sign to him. Judas, on the other hand, uses another sign of friendship for treason, for, to betray Jesus. Now, there's a little detail that sometimes we just pass over because, again, our culture is different and we don't notice every detail exactly. But if we look at Matthew 26, verse 49, it says that Judas came up to Jesus at once and said, Hail, Rabbi. Now, this is something... Very interesting. And by the way, there are parallels uh, elsewhere. But in this, he has reduced Jesus from identifying himself as the Son of Man. Remember, that's a very important phrase in the Gospels. It's a phrase that comes originally from the book of Daniel to describe the Messiah. He is called the Son of Man. And our Lord Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man as a way to indicate that he is fulfilling that prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. So 
that's the way Jesus describes himself. And Judas just says, Hail Rabbi. And the idea is that he has made Jesus into just one more rabbi among others. And therefore, if Judas believes that Jesus has, you know, failed as a rabbi, having him removed is just no more than removing any other rabbi who might seem unfaithful. And this is uh, something that our Lord has to confront. Also, one other thing I should mention, a number of times we see the apostles, especially Peter, address Jesus as Lord. Judas won't make that statement either. In Matthew 14, 28, 17, 4, and 18, 21, Peter calls Jesus Lord. But Judas won't do that. And he becomes willing to betray him. Now, at that point, we see in Luke 22, verse 48, that Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He confronts him head on, something that's very important to do. You know, taking a look at the sinful behavior and taking it head on is exactly what Christ does. And this is a very important element. We, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to spend time with this is that we see that Jesus is betrayed by those bishops and priests and deacons and others in the church who have been sex offenders in, in their role, that they are betraying Jesus as well as those people that they uh, were offending. But it's easier in their own minds to do this. It doesn't apply to everyone by any means. But in many of the cases, they, like Judas, have lowered Jesus' status they don't see him as their Lord, to whom they must give an accounting. They're focused on what they want at the moment. And, for instance, in some ways we, we see that people will reduce the truth of who Jesus Christ is and not treat him as Lord and God, but as just another teacher or philosopher. And then also... When you reduce Jesus, it's easy to reduce his commandments to vague, abstract principles. So it's very easy to say, well, I'm, I'm doing this out of love. And they can use that vagueness and abstraction to justify, well, I mean this to be a loving action, so it's okay. This is not unusual throughout society, by the way. This is not limited to sex abusers or any group. Lots of people can do it. They can do it for justice. They can do it for love, all sorts of things. But you put a primacy on love, and then you redefine love 
by the way the contemporary people act, even when they are breaking the commandments. They say, well, my understanding of love is higher than what God commands, so I'm going to use my redefinition. And again, you can do that and end up justifying anything you want. And this is, that applies to religious people, political people, all kinds of folks. Um, again, we, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But I'll take a break now and come back to this because there's some very real ramifications of this in the church today as has been in the past. So we'll discuss that at length when we return. Turn to our topic, I just want to invite you to join EWTN in Indianapolis next year, July 17th to 21st, for the National Eucharistic Revival. It's a movement to restore understanding and devotion to the Holy Eucharist here in the United States, and you can be a part of it. Uh, easy to do is go to EWTN.com slash Eucharist, and there you can learn more about the uh, con Congress and receive a code for discounted registration. And by the way, good news is that a recent study has shown that uh, uh, the what was at one point uh, in 2016 or something like that in a Pew study that only one third of Catholics believed in the real presence. As we have been preparing for this Eucharistic Congress next year, um, we, uh, the, the rise in faith in the real presence and understanding, it was mostly a lack of understanding. People have had faith, but they just didn't understand what was meant. And now it's two-thirds. That's a big jump in just a few years. Uh, and it shows the effect of good teaching uh, coming from the bishop's conference and uh, throughout. All right, I was speaking about one of the problems, a couple of the problems uh, that when we, and this applies to any of us, who justify committing sin. A lot of people commit sin because of their own weakness and they recognize and admit their own weakness and that it's a moral failure and a failure of the will and character. That's true. But there are a lot of people who try to justify it. And as I st started saying, they reduce Jesus to just one more teacher. And when you do that, you can put him with all kinds of other teachers and basically assume that Jesus wrote the book of second opinions. 
that that's easy to do. You reduce him from being Lord and God to just a teacher, then he's not that big a deal. But secondly, we also can see that any one of us is capable of making such ab abstract principles that we can then justify any specific action. Say, well, I'm really dealing with love, and so therefore if I believe that my act is a loving act, then, well, it is, of course. So that, that's what's going on. And here's where some of the weakness shows up. There, recently, there was a group of people who were supporting uh, blessings for same-sex unions over in Germany. And their uh, celebration hymn or song was the old Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. So they had understood their action within this abstract concept of love. So they sang an abstract song about love by the Beatles, All You Need Is Love. Instead, they did not sing uh, to Jesus Christ, our sovereign king, for which there's a German version, or many uh, or other songs that raise up Jesus Christ. No, they made abstraction. And it's an odd choice on their part to sing All You Need Is Love because that group, the Beatles, within a year of having made that song a big hit, broke up because they didn't love each other anymore. You know, uh, the, the song came out when, in uh, 1967, and, uh, and uh, then, I said, almost two years. So it was September of 69 that John Lennon broke off, and by uh, April of 1970, the whole group had fallen apart. It's not enough to sustain us to have a vague notion. Love is very concrete, and it especially... And those who are married understand this very well. It especially shows itself when you don't feel like loving your spouse or your children or your parents. And you say, doesn't matter. I choose to love you anyway. It's an act of the will, not a feeling. Good feelings can be there, sure. But there's a point where you say, I love you no matter how I feel. I choose you as you are, not as I need you or want you to be. And uh, that's a very important thing. Now, this is something that especially becomes problematic when you confuse love with the human, basically not even human, animal instinct to lust. That's something that goes with the, the nature's, uh, I suspect it's true among uh, reptiles, but certainly among mammals, and it goes across the board. That there is just this focus, you know, on, on you know, uh, having sexual expression rather than love. Um, that is for sure. And this is something that when you confuse that with love, again, you can take something that is meant to be a theological virtue the highest of the loves. That's what we expect. 
And this is something that we, we just cannot, you know, confuse and still think that we are serving God, doing his holy will, or making ourselves liable to get to heaven. That kind of confusion can preclude, you know, eternal life in heaven. And this is something where our love has to be purified. See, there are three theological virtues. The first of these, of course, is faith. And the second is hope. Hope that you get beyond things in this life. And then finally, love, being the highest of them. And why is love the highest? Because when you get to heaven, you won't have faith anymore. You won't have any hope. Why not? Because you don't need them. You don't need to believe in God. You'll see God face to face. You don't have to hope for eternal life. You have eternal life. But love outlasts faith and hope because you can only stay in heaven as you receive that grace to love. And the reason we call these virtues theological is that they are not gifts that come from human nature, but rather faith, hope, and love are gifts of God's grace. That's what's key. And they, the theological gift of love purifies the human loves. The love between a man and a woman is a very holy love when it's purified by God's grace. The love that you have for your children and your parents is a wonderful holy love commanded by God in the fourth commandment. But it also needs to have the purification that comes from the infusion of God's love, a gift of the Holy Spirit. Friendship is a wonderful and holy love and highly commended in Scripture as well as in philosophy. But that also needs to be purified and made holy by God's grace. This is a very important thing. And what we see with Judas Iscariot is that he abuses love, distorts it by giving a sign of love as a sign of betrayal of Jesus. That is why his act of kissing Jesus as a sign of identifying him for betrayal becomes an appropriate image for what went on in the sexual abuse crisis. And this is something that, uh, like Judas, we have to remember. Those who did this are very much the minority of priests and bishops. The abusers were 3% of all the clergy. That means 97% had nothing to do with that. Nothing. And you know that this is not the mentality of the majority of priests. You would not understand that if you listen to the press. Not always the brightest bulbs in the pack. But they uh, would try to make it more than that. But that 3% was horrible enough and did tremendous harm just like Judas, who was 8% of the apostles. He's the only one that betrayed Jesus as 8% of the apostles. But 
it had tremendous impact on everybody else and demoralized them, as we will see uh, as we go on through this. So this is uh, something that we can use to understand uh, the terrible damage that is done by such behavior. Also, we can see those that, that, that the kiss by Judas is a good symbol or an appropriate symbol of the other kinds of sexual uh, misconduct that goes on. Just because it's not misconduct with minors doesn't mean that it's okay, even if it's with consenting adults. For anybody who is not married to the other person, it is a grave sin. Doesn't matter what kind of behavior it is. And there, that exists. Again, we live in a sexually gluttonous society. The impact of pornography throughout our society is part of that gluttony. And we also can see that the gluttony shows up in now the tremendously widespread, I mean, we're talking tens of millions worldwide, it's about 45 million people who are traded in the sex industry. And they're slaves. And for sexuality, this is part of the sexual gluttony. The lack of commitment between men and women, not only to each other, but to the children they bring into the world. This is an aspect of the sexual gluttony. And all of this is, again, symbolized by Judas's betrayal with a kiss. This applies to all of those kinds of circumstances. And this is something that they do, that they realize that they are very much these um, wicked stewards, especially the clergy, uh, the clergy and the various uh, uh, other adults with responsibility. They are those wicked stewards that are mentioned in Matthew 40, uh, 24, um, where our Lord said, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunken, the master of that servant will come on a day that he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will punish him and put him with the hypocrites. Their men will weep and gnash their teeth. That's how our Lord sees this kind of betrayal. And it's the, the kind of attitude where they say, oh, Jesus won't come back. He won't punish us. It'll be okay. Uh, this is not that big a deal. No, the punishment that our Lord mentions there in that passage is that they will be cut into pieces. That's what the Greek word says. A punishment that goes way back to the days of Abraham, where that was how you punish somebody for breaking a covenant. Also, we have to remember the parable about the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31, 
when the Son of Man comes, remember, that's how Jesus identifies himself, as the Son of Man, unlike Judas' rabbi. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And what separates them? The sheep are those who took care of the least of the brethren of Jesus, fed them, clothed them, gave them something to drink, visited in prison and in hospitals. And what they did to least of the brethren, they did to Jesus. But what the goats neglected to do to the least of the brethren is what they neglected to do to Jesus, and they're condemned for that. How much worse for those clergy who abused victims. They did that to Jesus Christ himself. That's how our Lord will count that judgment. Abuse you did to the least of my brethren, that's what you did to me. That, by the way, just always like to remind you, a lot of politicians, Catholic ones, will say, well, uh, I'm a Matthew 25 Catholic. I want to do to the least of my brethren. Well, you better make sure that you are not supporting abortion in any way. Because if you support that, you are supporting doing that to Jesus himself. Talk about the least of Jesus' brethren. That applies to those young children, whether it's in violence or sexual abuse. So this is something that we have to see. And we lament, and we should lament, the evil that Judas Iscariot did. And we have to lament what clergy have done over the past years, especially from the late 60s. That's when from the late 60s into the early 90s. That was the high point of it all. And lament whatever they might be doing even in the present time, either in acting out themselves or in encouraging others to go contrary to the holiness of sacramental marriage between a man and a woman. We lament that and we ask our Lord, give me the grace of hope, because we need that virtue, not to allow the scandal caused by these other people to make me fall. Rather, Give me a strength to stay with you, to stand firm with you, Jesus Christ, and by standing with you, to do as you would have me do, to help unmake the problem, to counteract the sin. That's the task that we have. All right, we'll stop there, and we'll come back uh, with questions from uh, you and our studio audience. We'll start off with a lady who's in our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? Lancaster, California is north of Los Angeles. Welcome. Good to have you here. And what can we do for you? I was wondering, there's a heresy that's regarding uh, making judgments on yourself or justifying mm -hmm. your actions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's not really a heresy. Here's, here's a, a, an important issue. 
heresy normally applies to denying doctrine or dogma. And in this, we are in the area of moral teaching. And that's a little bit distinct. And it's wrong, but the distinction is this, that with the moral failure, you, uh, you have to find ways to correct. Now, oftentimes, that's what I'm pointing out here too, that oftentimes the moral failure is connected with heresy. See, that's where, where your point may be very relevant, that if you reduce Jesus Christ from being true God and true man and make him only a man, then you can relegate him to being like other men and other philosophers. And we, he has his opinion, I have mine. The, the implied may not be what they call formal heresy, but the informal heresy that you don't state out loud is that I don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And that can help justify the immorality. That would be the point. That's why that's a very important question. Okay? All right, we have Barbara on the phone. Barbara, where are you calling from? I'm calling from New York. Great. We have a number of New Yorkers here, though I think they're from upstate, and you don't sound like it. Well, actually, I am upstate now. I used to live on Long Island, but I'm upstate now. Yes, I'm in the Catskills, yes. yeah. What can we do for you today? Okay, yes. Um, I recently enrolled some of my family members in the perpetual enrollment for, through the Association of the Immaculate Medal, where they'd be prayed for forever. Sure. Wonderful. And my question is, if my family members died 50 or 60 years ago, are they still in purgatory waiting all this time for these prayers? Or did our Lord, who knows everything, and knew when, they, knew when they had died that these prayers would be said now, did he apply these prayers to their souls at the time of their death? I, I don't know how exactly our Lord applied them, but my own sense of dealing with the concrete realities of living in human history is that when you brought that, brought those people to our Lord, your act of faith and your prayer for them began to take uh, effect at the moment that you made that request and enrolled them in that perpetual prayer. So that would be the, my own uh, strongest sense. I mean, I, I'm not in charge of judgment of souls in purgatory, um, you know, that, that'll be up to our Lord. I always say judgment of souls is a management question and God is management. So I let him do that. But I would assume that the effect of your prayers began when you began your prayers. And this is why it's good for us to pray for the uh, souls in purgatory. Right? Very important, and including those who have nobody else to pray for them. We have Richard on the phone. Richard, what can we do for you? Yes, Father Mitch. This is uh, Richard Stefanik, and I was just wondering if he were given something 
is it a bigger sin to deny it or to bring it to light? Wait, I, I'm not sure I quite understand. If I'm given something? If you were given something, is yes. it a bigger sin to deny it or to bring it to light? To deny it or bring it to light? I'm not sure what kind of thing you're talking about. If I'm given something. I mean, if I'm given... Okay, I, I, okay, I was given a message. Oh, I see. This is... Okay, I see what you mean. I wasn't sure if you're talking about giving somebody, you know, a donation of money or something like that. I, I was unclear. Here's the thing that I would do in that kind of situation. I, as a matter of fact, I would definitely do it. Take that to your spiritual director. If you don't have one, find a, 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 a priest that you trust and talk to him about it. And it would take some discernment. Remember what St. Paul says in, uh, as a matter of fact, I'd urge you to read this. Take a look at the first epistle to the Corinthians and look at chapter 14. And you see there that when uh, uh, a prophet receives something, it is subject to the prophet and should be discerned because God is a God of order and not a God of confusion. And so going to a, a, a priest that you trust and discussing what do I do with this, that would be a useful thing. Um, you know, St. Um, Margaret Mary Alacoque uh, did that with uh, uh, her spiritual director, uh, who happened to be uh, a Jesuit, uh, now Saint Claude de la Colombière, and it took time, and it didn't get out all the message, even during his or her lifetime, but it got out through him in a way that neither she nor he understood, because neither of them had access to the papacy, but he was given it by St. Margaret Mary to have the Feast of the, Immaculate of the uh, Sacred Heart, and he gave it to a noble woman who knew the Pope, and she brought it to the Pope, and now it's a feast. So take it to somebody that you trust and discern, take some time to discern with that person and then see what he says, okay? All right, I tell you what, let's take a break. We'll come back in just a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. <coughs> Thank you, and welcome back. Now, 
First, I'd like to ask you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. for EWTN Live. Our guest will be His Excellency Bishop Francois Beirouti of the Melkite Catholic Eparchy of Newton, uh, Newton, Massachusetts, to discuss the Melkite Catholic Church's efforts to foster vocations. So that'll be um, a very, very good thing to do. Uh, some of you might not even know much about the Melkite Catholic Church. So this will be a good chance to find out who they are. And we're looking forward to having Bishop uh, Francois Beirouti on our show. All right, we have uh, some emails from you. I'm going to start off with an email from Jean. It says, Father Mitch, when our Lord taught his disciples many times about taking up their crosses and following him, he had not yet been crucified on the cross. How do you think the disciples understood what he was talking about? What would they have understood as your cross in terms of suffering? Would they have understood the call to general suffering or an actual crucifixion event in suffering at the hands of the Romans? Gene. Well, Gene, uh, I would strongly assert that they would be thinking about actual crucifixions. There was a uh, pretty serious Jewish revolt uh, led by zealots uh, when uh, around 6 BC. And a lot of people were crucified, especially in Galilee. The, uh, these, uh, the zealot party had successfully conquered the, uh, and destroyed the Roman capital city of Galilee. That was called Sephorus. And in fact, after that revolt, Sephorus was being rebuilt. Why is that important? Because it was just a mile and a half away from Nazareth, where a carpenter like St. Joseph would find a lot of work. They're rebuilding a whole city. And you can go to the ruins of it. In fact, if you should ever go to Israel, in the airport, they have a very, very large mosaic from the city of uh, Sephorus on display as you enter into the airport to go to customs. Um, uh, so it was a very large city, lots of beautiful mosaics. Uh, and St. Joseph most likely was working on that city uh, throughout his life. So my point being that people had very clear ideas of what crucifixion looked like uh, and on a large scale. And the issue would be to follow a politicized version and suffer as a political enemy or pick up the cross and follow Jesus. That was going to be the, the key issue. So that's what our Lord is talking about. We have Antoinette calling in. Antoinette, where are you from? I'm from Milpitas, 
California. Wonderful. And your question? I have a great-grandson, F. Gay, mm -hmm. and he looks up to me. Uh, and I tried to tell him that when he told me, I told him, I love you. Good. And I, it's okay to be gay, just don't act on it. Mm -hmm. And um, he has acted on it. Now he wants to bring his boyfriend over for me to meet. And I'd let him know that I, you know, that it's wrong. God says it's wrong. Mm -hmm. He told me that he believes it's wrong, too. He has gone to church being young and got baptized mm -hmm. in a different religion. Mm -hmm. But uh, he... he he believes that it's wrong, and I told him, you have to live the truth, even if you're doing wrong. That made me happy to hear him say that yeah. he that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. So do I need his boyfriend? I don't know if I, am I encouraging it, or? First of all, Antoinette, you are doing very well to let him know how much you love him. That's your great-grandson. And it sounds as if your role in his life, your position in his life, is to be a touchstone with somebody that truly loves him, but will also be, because you've got a connection, because within every family, Certain individuals like other individuals and they sort of connect better than others in the family. You made the connection with him and sustained that and shown that you love him. But at the same time, it's going to be a couple of things. Um, I, I, I would recommend for you, and maybe if he wants to study this too, there's a wonderful book by Dale O'Leary. I believe we have it on our religious catalog. It's called One Man, One Woman. This gives a number of very important studies that will help to place in perspective some of the elements psychologically and medically that are going on. And another uh, book that I would also recommend is called Sexual Wisdom. That covers a wide variety of topics, but it includes some of the medical issues that are involved in uh, homosexuality. I urge you to get some of that and use that love. Now, within the context of you loving your uh, great-grandson, address some of the concrete issues to say, look, you have a vague sense, but you need to inform yourself more on what is going on and what you can do to make proper corrections and safeguards for yourself. Um, uh, uh, both of those books are very, very helpful. You may also want to contact uh, Courage, which is a Catholic organization uh, of people with same-sex attraction. And take a look 
at some of the wisdom and their experience. They may be able to help you in that regard, okay? That would be my strong, but definitely love him. You don't reject him. I, I, I know a number of homosexuals now. I try to be a good friend. But I also am going to be as good a friend as I can and try to also pass on the wisdom of what Christ teaches on proper use of sexuality. We have another caller. Pat, where are you calling from? Lansing, Michigan. Can you hear me okay? I hear you just fine. Okay. Um, I have a question. Thank you for taking it. Um, Please, God... Uh, I'm not out of order, uh, but I, I've been concerned. I'm um, a year and days from being 80. I'm a Vietnam veteran, mm-hmm. and I wondered, I've wondered through the years uh, when I'm at Mass uh, if um, God would actually con- condemn a human being to hell forever and ever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. for 70 years of sinful life. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's going to be the key to that. Our Lord is not going to judge us and reward or condemn us the way the Egyptians understood it. They believed that your good deeds had to be heavier than a feather. That's why if you ever take a look at the Egyptian Book of the Dead, they will have a balance with a feather on it. And if your good deeds can even it out, then you're good enough to go to their paradise. Okay, That was their sense. It's not that kind of justice. God forgives sins that are, uh, and his mercy and forgiveness are infinitely greater than our sin. And secondly, there is no sin that any one of us can commit that is more powerful than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our sins can be forgiven. And they are outweighed because Jesus Christ is not just another man dying on a cross. There are lots and lots of them. Spartacus and his slaves and so many others. But it is God the Son who is infinite. And the infinite value of his death outweighs the power of any of our sins. The only things that can block us from receiving that mercy is to say, God can't possibly have mercy on me. God cannot possibly forgive me. I'm beyond that. I'm too bad. That would be a false statement. You are not bigger than God who died for us. You are not more powerful than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you are willing to have faith that his death can take away your sins, you 
will, you and anybody else will not be condemned. And our Lord can show mercy. And I think this is exactly where you have to spend time, uh, if it's you or somebody else, but this is where we all have to spend time realizing what God will do. As I accept that forgiveness, I also must take efforts to begin changing my life to be in accord with God's mercy. If he shows me mercy, he requires me to show mercy to others. That's the nature of our Christian faith. But you, you or anybody else will not be condemned forever because the sins were so immense. The only way to be condemned would be to refuse to accept the mercy and forgiveness God offers, to reject the gift of faith that he offers. It's a humble acceptance of his mercy that we need, but we have that's exactly what he calls us to do. I'll be praying for you. I've known you sound like a kid about my age. Um, I'm from the Vietnam era myself, and I didn't have to go because my draft card number was so high, but I know many friends talked about these things. Very important. I'm also flat out of time, so may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. May he lead you in all of your ways by his peace. The mighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And this network is brought to you by you. That's how our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to have it be here. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And if you do that, we'll pay all of our bills too. God bless you and thank you. Thank you.